This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, but that's not important right now. More important, by far, are my co-hosts. So welcome back, Aline Sanduk. Hi, thank you. Hannah Van Ert hey. is here today. Miranda Skeen is on board again. Hello. DJ Maddie Mix has returned to the mic. Hey, everyone. But if you sense an additional presence in the room, you can rest assured that it's not a telemedicine robot come to give you your fatal diagnosis. We have a special guest on the show. Was that in poor taste? (laughs) Should I not have said that? (laughs) I I think, I don't know. Someday we'll talk about that on the on the short code podcast. Anyway, we have a special guest on the show today. He's the head of the Carver College of Medicine's Department of Neurosurgery and the John C. Van Gilder Chair in Neurosurgery, recently named the University of Iowa's first ever National Academy of Inventors Fellow. Say hello to Dr. Matthew Howard. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Dr. Howard, uh, I asked you to be on the show um, when an article about you came out, and I was Super interested because I've read that you're the inventor on um, 34 university-owned patents. You've invented things like um, brain and spinal cord neuromodulation implants, and I kind of know what those are. Um, Surgical tools, a magnetic surgery system, um, and and the article said that more than 100,000 patients have been treated with those devices for things like epilepsy, obesity, chronic pain, traumatic brain injury, and... I thought, wow, cool. You know, one of the things that I've learned about medicine um, in doing this podcast for all these years is that you can almost do anything you want in medicine. You can you can uh, treat different populations of patients that you're interested in. You can study different things that you're interested in. Um, You know, you can you can write about your profession fictionally or otherwise, um, and you can invent things that didn't even exist before you came along. So you've got all these inventions in your portfolio. Surely you've got some idea. What makes an in, a great invention? Well, um, there, there's kind of a, a, a pattern that, that you see with really successful inventions. And uh, it, it's almost always the same, which is you, the first thing is you have to identify a problem, something that's not quite right. And uh, I would say that you have to identify the problem and then just frame why it's a problem. And it sounds kind of simple, but uh, actually I think that, and thinking back of the various inventions that my teammates and I have come up with, I bet that, that almost all of them, if, if we had framed the problem for a, an in, a group of engineers or student engineers, if we said, well, here's, here's what's going on right now, here are the deficiencies, add a little bit of information about what you can and can't do in surgery and say, go ahead and try to find the solution. I think most times they would. So it's, it's framing that problem is, is probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you've defined a problem. Uh, what's your next, what's your next step? Take us through the process from that idea to patient. Well, um, it's a long process, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a very long process. It's an iterative process. It's it's almost never the case that uh, a light bulb goes off in your head and you've you've got the exact solution. Typically, you have to um, again define the problem. And there might be three or four key things about the problem that need to be solved, and you think you might have one of them solved, but then then you start to think about it, think about it, and it's it's. A lot of things you can go faster and contract, but this kind of cognitive process, at least for me, it's unpredictable. You have to kind of wait for an idea. You think about it, and and the solution just kind of clicks at at some point. And then how, whether it's going to become a a device that you use or a flop, it, it, it depends a lot on complexity and cost. So I have some inventions that are, you know, almost silly. They're, they're so simple. Um, they're fun and others that cost over a hundred million dollars to, to get into, um, 
into widespread clinical use. So by, by silly, you mean like uh, things that you're like, well, why didn't anybody else think of this and it's so easy to do or things that didn't work out and you were like, well, more like, I'll give you an example of one, uh, like, I, I, here's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and it's been the least impactful <laughs> of, of any um, invention. So one of these operations that we do uh, involves doing some dissection in the back part of the skull and scalp. And the scalp, particularly in adult males, is really thick. And you to develop this plane, you introduce scissors and when they're in the closed position, and then you extend your fingers to open up the scissor blades. And the blunt edges of the scissors dissect the, the tissue and make this pocket for, for an implant. People have been doing it forever, and it actually works fine. But I don't like it. <laughs> because it sounds it sounds a little blunt. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so blunt, and you're you're having, you know, you're you're using your hand uh, in a way that's that's not at a mechan it's a mechanical disadvantage movement to extend your fingers. You have better control and strength if you close your fingers. And I just don't, particularly in neurosurgery, we're a little different than orthopedics, for example. We do not like to use really huge forces when we're moving tissue around. So I just thinking about it and thinking about it, aha. And so I invented these uh, scissors that are, the angle's a little offset and the uh, edges of the scissors are sharp on the outside. And when you close the scissors together, the blades extend and you dissect out and it works great. And every, just about every neurosurgeon looks at this and says, so what? I mean, this thing is so, <laughs> it is so trivial and, and unimportant and unimpactful. And there's something, I mean, this is, a, this is, um, I mean, inventing stuff is fun. And so yes. it's just kind of like your kid again, where you just go, oh, you know, I'm just going to play. It's goofy, but it's, you know, it's, it's fun. And it's almost like a challenge. You'd say, cause the students will come up with, or the resident will come up with a, 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 a cool idea and oh, it's just a hoot. <laughs> so when you, when you're, when you're thinking, when you come up with an idea, when you come up with this problem, you've defined the problem, you've, um, you've set it in front of, I assume you've set it in front of a group of people to um, take a look at, or do you, um, you know, is it, do you, you know, if you come up with the solution all by yourself and give it to people, how does that work? In early stage, it's small teams mm -hmm. and it might be just one other person or so, but you do need to think out loud, get up on the whiteboard and start laying these things out. And um, it's a lot, it's a lot like planning experiments too, where, where you, you, um, but it's just uncanny how, if you get a bunch of people around the table, you just don't know who's going to make that breakthrough. Again, where you've got, here are the three or four things we got to solve, uh, and and somebody will just boom think of this this thing, and and that that also makes it a lot of fun, mm -hmm. and everyone feels important because they are. So I have a question. When you're making like a prototype for something, so like when you're talking about your reverse scissors, there had to be, is that what you call it, by the way, the reverse scissors? No, they oh. are called, um, they, and actually, if you go on the internet and you uh, Google shunt scissors, I believe they will show up because nobody else cares. <laughs> about, uh, the top, scissors. So I think the it, top result. Because I think it might, I think it's been looked at like, 10 times or 12 times or something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. called shunt scissors. That just yeah, seems, shunt scissors. That just seems oh, unjust. That seems, because, you know, I've, I've seen this on videos, you know, like uh, of, of yep. the people, mm -hmm. you know, spreading the scissors to, to make the pocket. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I guess it never occurred to me that it was a, yeah. a difficult thing. Yeah. But of course I don't do surgery. So what the heck do I know? Yeah. So on the team thing, I tend to, because it kind of ties in the shunt scissors is I've got these friends that I, work with for a long, long time, ever since I was a student. And we tend to, you know, if a new idea pops up, rally the same crowd. And with the shunt scissors, I knew instantly that it was clever, but worthless. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I've sent my friends like who are in very senior positions. I said, this is the, like the biggest invention ever. <laughs> it's coming your way. I went to downtown to that Iowa artisans place. Do you know where yeah, that little yeah. shop mm -hmm, is there? Mm -hmm. 
I got nice wooden boxes. I put the scissors in there. They were all secret. And I got, it was so fun to send them to the, and they're waiting and they're waiting. And they open it up and go, golly, this is, this is, this is not very important. It really played up the PR aspect of that. Yeah. 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 Get, get, them, get everyone riled up. But so, I forgot what the question, David. Oh, actually, the, I'm sorry. Oh, I want to oh. jump in because yeah, yeah. Um, someone had to make the first. Oh, yeah. Prototyping. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Uh, on the, on the serious side, uh, for devices, prototyping is absolutely essential because you just don't know how these things are going to interact. You draw them out, sketch them out, do, do your renderings, but in practice, you don't know how they're going to work. So you need prototypes and that used to be very slow and very expensive because you would go to a machine shop, you'd have to have a skilled machinist work with you and they'd build these things and there one project we're working on now for example is the spinal cord uh, device and uh it's a really tricky tricky system and we it it's gone on long enough where we bridged the time where we did not have 3d printing and when we do have 3d printing. Oh, that's interesting yeah and so um, our our machine shop people would build these elaborate things to embody the, the concept that we're trying to work on it's been a couple months have this beautiful thing. I'd use it for five minutes. I know this isn't right. You know, we got to, we got to change this thing, which is the way it is. I mean, you're going to have to make changes. And then we got, uh, there's a place downtown merge. Mm, yeah. It's, mm. it's a state of Iowa, Iowa city university, uh, collaborative effort. They have very talented people there. Is that house next to the public library? Yeah, it's right there, right downtown. And you can see some of the stuff they build if you look in the window or go in to, to look at it. And it is extraordinary. So I think they call it, the, the, the overall notion of using 3D printing, I think they call it the fourth industrial Re revolution or, or something like that. And and I see, I get it, you know, where... It's becoming huge. It, it's, it's gigantic. So you'll do, you'll now you'll have this idea... And the person who really drives that is Chuck Romans. He'll he'll create a three-dimensional model that you can look at and say, that looks good. The next day, it'll mm -hmm. be a reality. He'll print wow. it out and we'll use it and we'll say, well, that part needs to bend a little this way. This one isn't quite right. And and the team will think again, say, well, you could change this, change that. And then the next day, he's got another version and it costs very, very little to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. And now that... I mean, it's been a it's it's been a while that you can do this, but now it's becoming much more affordable to say three D print in stainless steel or um, you know yes. other other metals and and um, so you can really start to get you know I don't know if they're at the point yet where you, where they can three um, D print a finished instrument, but you can really get a pretty good feel of what you're. I do a little three D printing um, uh -huh. through the Iowa City Fab Lab and. So what's fun is you, you know, I, I sort of get, I sort of get what you're saying um, in terms of, you know, creating something because, you know, like if I need something for the house, like I needed a spacer for the faucet in the bathroom. And so I, you know, couldn't find it and I went and designed it and had it printed out at the Iowa City Fab Lab and they, and I brought it home and I put Where's it Where's the Iowa City Fab Lab? Is it linked with Merge at all? It is, is not. A stand, it's a standalone. It's on, uh, excuse me, Capital uh -huh. and Benton. Uh-huh. Capital and Benton. Um, For our listeners at home, those are streets in yes. Iowa City. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I was. You know, no, I'm I mean, fascinated by that stuff. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 really it's really kind of cool what you can do with 3D printing, and I, I imagine it makes um, just your job uh, easier, faster. Um, I'm also interested in you know you keep mentioning the team and and you know you might get the idea from reading that article um, that I read that brought me that you know led me to contact you. You know that you're sort of you know alone in a lab somewhere coming coming up with your ideas and and um, and bringing them to fruition all by yourself. But you know, I kind of knew when I was reading that 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 that, that couldn't be true, especially with something as complicated as no, not even not even close. Yeah. So yeah. so um, yeah, I got started as an example. I got started when I was a medical student, actually. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah so it was, it was uh, uh, prior to going to medical school, I, I was went to college at. Tufts and was a physics major and right about then the uh, CT scanner actually one of my professors there won the Nobel Prize while I was there uh, Alan Cormack he shared it with Hounsfield for the CT scanner and it was just starting to come online clinically 
And as a, as a medical student, one of the big advantages you have is that, you know, you're just as smart as the professors. You're less experienced, which makes it, you can't take care of patients yet, but you have unique perspectives and you have a lot of stuff in your mind and can do things that, you know, our solar guys can't do. Um, so you're coming at these, um, these challenges from a fresh perspective. So when I was a student, I'm looking at it and, and the professors are looking at the CT scans, which are kind of grainy, then going to the brain and doing their work. And it seemed to me that they weren't really harnessing that information very effectively. And that, you know, you ought to have computers and video displays and you should be able to link three-dimensional imaging with a uh, remote force generator. So I was thinking about magnets. And um, the timing was such that, that many of the key elements were just reaching a level of development where, where it just happened to be feasible. But then I went and talked to a physics professor at uh, UVA and a neurosurgery resident. And the three of us teamed up, formed a company, and, and now it's a publicly traded company. Had you been inventing before um, med, uh, medical school? I mean, was this something that you that you did as a, for instance, as a as a as an undergrad, as a kid, even? So uh, my junior resident, one junior resident who's on the faculty at Columbia, his name, his name is Guy McCon. He was always the guy I would bounce ideas off when um, when I was a resident in in Seattle and. He was really valuable because 99 out of 100 ideas are no good. And he's the kind of person that's happy to say that. You know, he just say, that just stinks. <laughs> you that need, just you is, need that. That is no good. So what he defines, he doesn't call me an inventor. He says, you are a tinkerer. And so I've always been, I've always loved tinkering, stuff, yeah. you know, as a kid and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Loved it. Tin cans, you know, putting them together. And all all uh, that kind of stuff. So you've, you're, you've progressed your idea to the point where it's um, a physical object that seems to work the way you want it to. What's the next step in the, in the process? It, um, it, in medical devices, with rare exception, nothing's going to get used to help a patient unless it's commercialized. And that is a very difficult process. And you wouldn't go ahead and try to take care of patients without getting training and experience and connecting with people who know what they're doing. You wouldn't do research unless you teamed up with people who knew what they were doing in senior two. And the same applies to, to the business. Uh, it is tricky. It is complicated. So I've been doing it for a long, long time. And probably among neurosurgeons, probably, you know, there aren't too many people more experienced. And I go to them all the time. You know, I cannot, it, it's, it's a special field. It is changing all the time. The best people in that field are just as talented as the best people in our field. So... You, you, you need to seek help and guidance on how to commercialize. And then sometimes you'll get the bad news that this thing, it really doesn't have any commercial value. You, mm. you, and you have to get yourself into the mindset of the people who make decisions about commercialization. How, who's going to put the money in? Um, startup companies are one way to go. Very complicated and incredibly exciting, but difficult. Another is to license your ideas to a, a company, an existing company, and that's probably a, that that has a higher probability of resulting in something getting out there and helping patients. Mm. Yeah, I was curious what you meant by that. If it was a question of um, means of production, or obtaining licenses, or going through maybe some governmental process um, in terms of commercializing, because it seems like that's like a multifaceted term and could mean multiple things but um it sounds like really the biggest thing is getting someone on board with funding yeah that i mean that's what you're you've pointed out the complexity you have um actually it was just earlier this week i was meeting with um a, an iowa grad undergraduate business grad who's working with John Darcy now, who's, who's the, our entrepreneurial office for the university. And those two were part of this company called iRhythm that went public a couple of years ago, hugely, hugely successful. And 
we were talking about these, these, these very issues is what's different about, cause he's kind of thinking about it from the business school standpoint, what's different about the business of medical devices compared to other businesses. And he cites this example where his daughter was in school and comes home and says, well, I've got this thing on the phone or someone's got this thing on the phone where you can look at a picture or do one of these apps that comes up came out of nowhere a month later everyone's using it and it's the, the guys who started it sell it for you know a billion that doesn't happen with medicine and the reason is that it is to, to create the product takes a long long time it's very expensive and the industry is highly regulated we have you know your your fda application for devices um be oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages long. So it's there. There are lots of barriers to entry into that business. It's very tough. But I don't want to discourage people. I mean, if it were, if once you get there, it's all good. Are there any NIH or sort of large medical association initiatives to grant funding to um, physicians who want to? who are inventors of medical devices, or is it primarily sort of through these uh, companies that are developed or sponsor sponsorships with different businesses? The um, government mandates that a certain portion of the NIH budget go specifically to business development, mm -hmm. and it can't go to the big companies. So it is, they have funding, and it's really important. Um, it's called SBIR grant mechanism to help small companies for, for exactly that reason. Okay. And it, it's uh, typically your scientists or faculty members team up with business persons, some engineers, and give it a go. This magnet company I was telling you about, that's how we started, okay. was with the SBIR support. That's good to know. So that's, it's key. Bridges that, when, when you, kind of another term they use uh, when they're trying to assess whether to support a, an idea is you... You need to de-risk it. In the beginning, an idea has all these risks. Might not work. Might not work well enough. Might be unsafe. And you come up with this plan where you're going to do experiments and do things that are going to give you information that de-risk the enterprise. And then your value goes up and you have a better shot of getting the resources you need to bring it across the finish line. It feels like there's a trend in research nowadays more and more where... Um, um, safer projects and safer proposals are getting funding over things that are a little bit higher risk just because money is so tight and the NIH seems to be under pressure to give money to things that are more likely to generate, um, you know, actionable information. Do you, do you find that that's also the case? Has that changed over time in your field or do you find that it's, it hasn't changed in terms of difficulty of getting funding for high risk work? Uh, so on the research, so I, my research uh, interests are in brain physiology, and we we study human brain physiology, and the competitiveness and how difficult it is to get uh, it. It kind of fluctuates along with these bar graphs that show the grant success rate o over time at NIH, and it, it kind of go. It's not too bad right now, actually. Um, there have been times in the past where it was really, really bad. Um, and it kind of forced people out of the field. Right now, not too bad. Businesses are getting, on the medical device side, are uh, they're getting more and more conservative. And it's tougher to take them, have them take a flyer on something that's high risk, for sure. Um, this, this might be a controversial thing to say, but um, I get the impression about a lot of businesses these days that... Um, instead of coming up with new ideas, they seem to be repurposing old ideas in order to generate revenue to fund higher risk things. Um, would you agree with that? Or do you find that innovation has gone up or gone down with time? On the device side, they um, a successful company will only innovate if they have to, because it costs to, to innovate. And there's so much pressure to perform financially for your shareholders. They're, they will set aside enough resources so that they can they have enough new products coming in. And, and again, to the comment a little while ago, it's so regulated that it's tough for new people to come in and, and compete with them. Now, what will happen is you'll uh, periodically have a new player come and 
and massively disrupt the market. So a, uh, an example is spinal cord stimulators. These are devices that are implanted to help, usually help patients with chronic pain. And there were about, there, there were three major companies uh, several years ago, and they had a, about a $2 billion a year uh, business, which is pretty good, you know, the total, total market. And then somebody, it was, uh, some of the original research came out of Mayo Clinic, but then Bay Area Venture people backed a um, company, new startup called Nevro, and they executed their plan just perfectly. It went to Europe and tried a new approach, which was delivering a stimulus at a frequency rate that was so high that a patient can't even perceive it, and yet it, it seemed to result in pain relief. Mm-hmm. And they um, they did spectacularly well, uh, replicated the results in the United States, went public, and took big market share from the other three. So then the others are scrambling. And the bigger companies, oftentimes, they don't have, um, they're not going to have a neurosurgery group like we have. They don't have, I mean, no, no companies have that. So they reach out to, um, to some extent, academia, but the startups, the little startups, and they'll look at the little startup. And if it looks like it's, cause it's, it, when you're in a startup mode, you've got to make it work. You're, you're just the, you're so motivated and you're so focused on the concept that, that was the reason for doing the startup that if it's working, then a comp- a big company comes in, acquires it. And that that's their growth strategy. You know what's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick? Podcast merch. And you know what's better than filling a podcaster's pockets when he doesn't need the money? Podcast merch that does something good. When you buy our t-shirts at theshortcode.com slash store, every dollar we make will be given to charity. Spring 2019's charity is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Get your SEPT and bring some light into the world at theshortcode.com slash store. A company that 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 comes up with a product may want to may want to keep revisiting that product to make it better and better and better or more different or apply to different populations may do you focus on um new ideas and hand them off how does that work it depends on the project so i'll give you two examples one is a a device that we um, are developing for patients who need what's called a hemicraniectomy operation so these patients are, have had a stroke or a head injury, their brain swelling, and the way we treat them now is to do an operation where we remove a large portion of the skull. The skull is stored, scalp's closed, and then sometime in the future, sometimes months later, we'll do the second operation, bring them back to the hospital, reopen the scalp, put the bone flap in, or put a metal plate in. That, that second operation is called the cranioplasty procedure. And we... We want to get rid of the cranioplasty operation, the second one, because there are complications, it's hard on the patient, and we've been developing for a number of years an implant that we would put in during the first operation that would accommodate the brain swelling. Once the swelling's down, go back and form a perfect, you know, this this is all idealized, a perfect closure to the skull without needing any more surgery. So if it works, it's going to totally transform the way we take care of those patients. It's not easy. And um, in this instance, we teamed up with a company called KLS Martin, which is a German manufacturer of precision medical devices, and they sell cranial plates, and and they're quite innovative. So we've had a partnership with them for a number of years. They only do 510K. That's the lowest bar, this this 510K. The uh, FDA will tell you whether you'll have a pretty good idea yourself, but, but the, the final word comes from the FDA, whether they're going to accept your argument that there is a predicate device that's close enough that there's not massive new risk involved. Now, the, they wouldn't have taken this project. They wouldn't do it if it was... They wouldn't have if it was, five, ten, yeah. if it was Well, the company wouldn't do it if it was going to have oh. to be a PMA. The PMA... You're, we have a spinal cord project, the second project, the spinal cord implant. That is going to be a PMA, and it will not, there's no way it's going to have commercial approval until we've gone through $70, $80 million. Mm. So that's a lot of money to put in to, to get people to, 
bet on a project if you don't even know it's going to work. So that, that, that's that balance is it's, it's the cost of the, of uh, the regulatory process is so high. Yeah. I mean, the different steps make sense, but you know, it's costly. Is that cost attributable to processes that are carried out by the government or are there sort of organizations that you can contract this work out and that's where the cost comes from? You, the company have to do all the work and then you present it to the uh, FDA. Then they review it. The, requirements for the work are, com- are are so complicated that you need consultants. And and you look at the, um, like I was in the army for a while. I really didn't do anything. I was a reservist. But when you, <laughs> when you, when you, uh, you look at some of the rules and regulations, I mean, I speak English. I can read. I don't understand what they're talking about. And, and it, this is, it's so full of jargon. It makes no sense to, as, as a, as reading material, and that is the case with these things. Lawyers, am I right? <laughs> so you'll have you'll have FDA experts who, who who they work for the FDA typically, or they work for a giant company for a while. They know uh, it's like a translator. You know, it's like a translator, and, it, and it's a big industry. Um, without the consultants, you can't do it. And and to test these devices, they'll have shops that know how to do it the way the FDA wants it. You know, it's not all bad, but but it's really tough and really expensive. What testing procedures do they need to go through? Well, uh, an example would be with our spinal cord device. They're going to, um, we have to uh, mount it to a benchtop model of the spine. Mm-hmm. And we, they have actuator machines that have to be calibrated. It has to be in a GLP, good laboratory practice certified facility. And they wiggle the wire, you know, maybe 30 degrees at some radius per second for months, you know, millions and millions of cycles. Then you do this, uh, these, you study the wires under some special scanning, this or that to see, see if they're, they're broken or not. You've got to do uh, large animal experimental studies and you can't do the ones we do here. You have to do them in a GLP facility where they're, they have incurred these costs to be in compliance with all the stuff that, that mm-hmm. you have to do. I mean, it all makes sense. Um, but and then toxicology. So you'll mm-hmm. stick, you'll put that, you'll put that implant in the spine of a pig, and then they're going to take the pig's liver, eyes, and everything. It's just a standard approach. Say so just, just to check everything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's amazing. I mean, it, it really puts up. It's a. I mean, you need some kind of a safety mm-hmm. oversight thing like that. And I don't. I don't know that there's. I don't know if there's any other easier way to do it. So from from the beginning of that process to the end, how long can that take? I mean, what uh, so the magnet project it took. Um, so that 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 went. Uh, the first clinical case was. I'm losing track of time. Maybe 15 years ago, and it took 10 years and 60 or 70 million dollars to mm-hmm. to get get to that point. And then, and of course, then that gets layered into the cost of healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, these devices are expensive mm-hmm. because it costs, sure. in part, because it costs so much to sure. get them to market. Yeah. Right. Kind of going along with that, my question was going to be when these medical devices are in like neuros- neurosurgical practice, um, based on our current healthcare system, are there any limitations in having those devices implemented based on a patient's insurance status? Or is it just part of like the common practice of whatever condition that they're presenting with that you use that device? Um, the, the, the sequence is that you receive FDA approval. Mm-hmm. So that means you can use it. And you won't, I was mentioning iRhythm. So that company, which is so successful, do you all, are you all familiar with the Halter Monitor? Do they ever tell you about that? Yeah, or? yeah. So for cardiac arrhythmias, they, the standard thing for a long, long time was to strap this device on. It's kind of kludgy and see if you went into cardiac abnormal rhythms when you're going out about your regular business. And these guys just came up with a better way, which is just like a patch. And you wear it for a couple of weeks and mail it in. And they, it's, it's great. So they get FDA approval and the cardiologists love it. But it's not really going to get used until the insurance companies decide to pay for it. So the government makes a decision about whether Medicare is going to pay for it. And then John Darcy, the entrepreneur 
officer here. His job with that startup company was to reach out to the commercial insurers. He had to reach out to over 1,000 of them. And he's still, and he's made great progress. He's still got a few to go who haven't, (laughs) haven't, haven't come around. So then you get that. And so then, then you say, well, what, what about the actual patient? So the patient comes in and they, their insurance pays for, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, two things, the doctor and the hospital. And the Doctor's fee will, I mean, truth is, it's, it's going to influence decision-making a little bit. And, and the hospital fee, for sure. So we, we do many operations here where we implant devices and the company makes money and the institution loses money. In other words, we ended up taking the money that we have for other projects and gave it to the medical device company. Uh, so it's th- that reimbursement issue is really, really mm-hmm. important and complicated. So would that kind of de-incentivize like medical institutions from like looking at these new devices and these new techniques because they would end up losing money via the insurance company and via the medical device company? It gives one pause mm-hmm. and whole countries give pause to it. So in England, for example, they have a committee where you can't sell anything there unless they have vetted it carefully and they're just scientists they're un, you know ostensibly uncorruptible scientists are looking at this and actually a lot of stuff we use they will not let into the market there they'll say it just isn't proven and and it's just too expensive and there it's socialized care where there's only so much money mm-hmm. to take care of everybody and we're, we're just we're going to be selective about how we spend our money is that nice is that what it's called, the organization? Uh, might be. I, okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So when I was a resident, I spent one year practicing in London, and um, so we got to see, you know, all that stuff uh, firsthand. You know how 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 it um, how socialized medicine works, at least in a, a high end kind of clinical service like neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Now, one way that the institution can make money is through um, patents and licensing, right? I mean, yes. So anything that you my understanding, anyway, is that anything that, that you and your team come up with, the university owns part of. Yes. And they own the whole thing. Okay, so they own the whole thing. and so They, they own the whole, whole intellectual property, which right. is the patents, yeah. And so they license... They license it to companies. To companies so that they can produce these products. Yeah, and sometimes they'll license to a startup so that the, the faculty member can start a company and license his or her idea from from the institution. Yeah, which is why the, universe, why the institution provides support um, it sort of helps yes. them with their, with and it's their, a good thing. Yeah, it's a good system. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to say uh, here at the university we benefit a lot from the patent of uh, the CMV promoter. It pays mm-hmm. for a lot of things, and the person who we, I guess, who generated that. I don't remember his name, um, but he he pretty much spends the rest of his days golfing and traveling <laughs> in the Pacific. So, is this the uh, cytomegalovirus promoter? Wow! Ooh, very good, good on you. Like to break out a little, <laughs> so that little knowledge <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, that oh, that learning. is uh, <laughs> that was a hall of fame uh, comp, and that brought in hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. to to the university. Yeah. It's incredible invention. Kind of going on a different track. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey to neurosurgery, and especially being like a physician inventor as you were going through medical school, residency, and now kind of in your practice, how have you been able to carve out time to conduct this research when you have already so many clinical demands? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, David, go, circling back to your your comment when you kicked this thing off was medicine is so cool because there is a place for everybody. It is so broad. And you, uh, whatever your personality is, whatever kind of how you, whether you like stress, you hate stress, there's, there's a place for everybody to, to, uh, contribute. So it's after step one. Yeah. Everyone gets stressed. Yeah. Everyone's got to get stressed through that. But, 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 but the, um, yeah. And it, and it, um, so me going into neurosurgery was a personality match. I mean, you see, you see the trainees ahead of you. You know, when you're a student, you guys are just getting started, but you'll be, 
you'll be seeing residents and, and you go, you know what? I could see myself being someone like that. So I, I tagged along. It was one of the, during the, one of those summer research things I met, uh, I work with a neurosurgery resident and got exposed to the clinical side and I go, that's a good, I, I like this. That's, it's a good fit. And, um, and, uh, I had good mentors and I saw how they did it. And there, there are some, some practical issues that, that, um, come to play that where you can structure things so you can do that. So for example, our lab meetings are early in the morning every day and we build teams you, know, you can't, I can't be like a, a PhD PI. I can't, I'm PI on a grant for, been for a long, long time. Um, but it's a 30% of my time R01. So uh, surgeons, and as a surgeon, you gotta, you gotta have a, serious clinical practice or, or it doesn't work and, and that requires time so you know here's can i tell you something else guys yeah my daughter is in medical school she's a couple years, she's a senior and she just matched today hey she just so she decided to do uh, neurosurgery she's at the university of chicago now and she's going to penn nice Ooh, that is yeah. so cool so Following you guys yeah, that's a few years down the road for you <laughs> Yeah. Match day is a big day. Yeah, like so father, fun. like daughter. So fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I logged into Facebook for a second to look at uh, any stories for today. And uh, my news feed was just like one massive match day hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> we just had ours too. Yep. Huge deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It's so great to see. Uh, so great to see all these people who work so hard mm -hmm. uh, for the past four years. Um, finally have it come to a, to a point, basically. Um, also their spouses look very happy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Um, well, I had a whole bunch of other things to talk about today too, but we're not going to get to any of those things because, and that is, that is only right because it's been a fascinating discussion. But before we go, I want to try something. Oh no. Here we go. I thought I'd take advantage of having, uh, Dr. Howard here to, uh, give you all pop quiz on inventions. So. What? But we didn't study. I don't. <laughs> so let's begin. For each question, there are, I have, uh, this is a multiple choice. Uh, so you guys should be fine. Um, so let's see. In 2004, and, and Dr. Howard, please, I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll chime in with your answers too. Okay. In 2004, Leonid Kaufman was granted a patent for business cards even more ephemeral than those printed on paper. What material were they printed on according to his patent? Uh, bread, <laughs> cotton candy, lasagna, or chocolate? Chocolate. Okay, we've got chocolate. I bet it's chocolate, but I'm praying it's lasagna. <laughs> chocolate just seems very practical. It can mean not yeah. very practical, but practical very enough. Practical. <laughs> For me, it's very practical. There's, there's nothing you'd enjoy more than opening your wallet to search out that business card and pulling out... Oh, shit, in the summer. Yeah, How much would people love you, though, and remember you if your business That's card true, was chocolate? Yeah. yeah, well, if you said... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, what was option A? Uh, that would be bread. Well, so I was just thinking, if you keep it in your pocket, it's going to melt, right? Maybe it's bread. Yeah. Because bread keeps. I love, yeah. It does. <laughs> so does lasagna. <laughs> Stays moist in your, in your, in your pocket. <laughs> no, the, like the lasagna before you bake it. Ah, I see. Oh, like, no, yeah. In, in fact, uh, everybody who said chocolate is correct. Um, and I found on their website a, uh, That's cool, uh, yeah. a, a jingle <laughs> that they uh, came up with for this. Let's hear that. Tasty image chocolate. <laughs> I don't know why this Sounds like a parody. Chocolate photo booth. What? print on paper when you can print on chocolate. This sounds like an SNL sketch. <laughs> so beautiful. Tastyimagechocolate.com. <laughs> Oh, thank God that exists. Oh my That's God. cool. <laughs> Clever. Well, Clever. Gang, I just found my new ringtone. <laughs> yeah. This May 2005 uh, patent solves a problem for lonely children on playgrounds everywhere. Dale and Michael Boudreaux were issued a patent for what? Uh, a merry-go-round that is only 12 inches in diameter. Aww. A single-user seesaw. <laughs> a slide that you can fold up and take home with you when you're angry at the other children for not sliding correctly. <laughs> Or a swing that pushes itself. Ooh, 
That's wow. actually useful. I think seesaw, single-use seesaw. That sure sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a younger Hannah would have very much appreciated C, a, a, a slide you could fold up and take away when other kids were being stupid. <laughs> were you that, I was that kid. You, it's nice that you've grown up. Yeah, I'm out of here. You're, you're right. It's a, uh, a single-use seesaw. Very good. Very good. All right, next. Uh, Ross Eugene Long III was granted this patent in 2002 for, quote, an apparatus for use as a toy by an animal that is meant to resemble what? Uh, a very expensive and thus tempting shoe, a stick, a dead cat, or a slice of dog food scented pizza. What's the question? <laughs> it's an apparatus for use as a toy by an animal that is meant to resemble what? So we've got a shoe, stick, a dead cat. Or a, a slice of dog food scented pizza. I want to say the dead cat. <laughs> I would say stick because I feel like there's been a booming market lately for people that take seemingly obvious things and make the, like try to make money off. Okay. Yeah, stick feels like, like it's like something they market to be like, oh, a stick is too dirty for your it's pet. It's lazy. About, yeah. Take our fake stick. Like, yeah, or like the stick we got out of the woods, but we washed it so now it's a clean stick. <laughs> Hypoallergenic. Hypoallergenic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, surgery grade silicone stick. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think, Dr. Howard? We had a dog that um, was a lovely dog. He passed away after a long, happy life. He oh. he dragged a pizza all the way. From, he took it off the table and dragged it upstairs and hid it in his little bed. So <laughs> I know he liked pizza, so I'd say pizza. Okay. Uh, no, the answer is a stick. Um, <laughs> the patent abstract suggests that it could be manufactured from wood, could be made... <laughs> <laughs> could be made, wood, made of real wood. <laughs> could be made such such that it can break off into smaller segments, and that it can be textured and colored in a way that I can only assume would help it more closely resemble a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this thing is made from cellulose. It's going to be a big hit. Uh, okay, this patent issued to Richard E. Mahan in 1992 is for a picnic tablecloth with a special property. What is that property? Uh, it is absorbent enough to double as a napkin so that you don't have to pack napkins. It can be worn as a cape to facilitate transport to your picnic site. It's electrified to prevent crawling insects from ruining your lunch. It smells strongly of cooked pork so as to whet the appetite. Ew. So, <laughs> I was thinking all of those sounded pretty interesting until you got to the until last to one. Pork. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have absorbent like a napkin, a cape, electrified, or it smells a. like pork. I would say A. Mm -hmm. uh, absorbent. absorbent. Okay. See how many ply <laughs> picnic table. <laughs> any, how any, many ply? <laughs> anybody want to suggest a different answer? I like electric. I was yeah. also going to say electric. Okay. Well, it is electrified to prevent yeah. crawling yeah. insects from ruining your lunch. How electrified though? Like, is it going to? Well, the, the, the patent notes that a consumer who comes into contact with the strips will usually not feel the current, and even if the consumer is wet, the pr the current will only produce a slight tingling sensation. So that's. Fortunate. Okay. It's, it's the tingly. Uh. Yeah. So it's not disposable. It's reusable. Re yeah. How are you going to wash it if it's electric? I don't know. You can also get it oh. in, you can also get it in kit form to add to your, uh, <laughs> to your ex extant tablecloth. <laughs> extant tablecloth. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gloria L. Langston was issued a patent in 2004 for this innovative towel. What was its unique feature? Uh, it incorporates a loop of material so that it could be slung around the neck, thus rendering it a hands-free towel. It offers <laughs> graphics that delineate areas reserved for different body parts to prevent the spread of germs from one part to, the, to another. It was made of both absorbent and rough fibers so as to exfoliate while drying the skin, or it was very skinny so as to facilitate butt flossing. <laughs> Ew. I didn't know that had a name. So, well, sometimes you get a dry there. What 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 are you? <laughs> you know, I want to say that I saw Dr. Howard's picture, and I was like, he can take he he has he will have no trouble with this uh, with this. He looked like a nice man who <laughs> willing to entertain my my weirdness at the end of the show. Uh, yeah, so we have a uh, 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 neck uh, hands free towel. We have graphics. We have uh, absorbent and rough fibers, and we have skinny. Uh, what would what would your? I like the absorbent and rough. Okay. I like the loop to make it a hands-free towel. Why would you need a hands-free towel? I don't know. Because you, you know. can market it that way, Dave. People yeah. will buy it. Hands-free I feel like you drape, drape the towel over your neck and it's automatically hands-free. 
But I also kind of feel like you could sling it around the other direction, then it's a very easy Superman cape. So. Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, I know that I have seen towels that are d- delineated for like face versus like lower body regions. So I'm going to say the graphics one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maddie doesn't have a <laughs> strong <laughs> feeling. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it is. Uh, it incorporates a loop of material so it can be slung around the neck. <gasps> Uh, oh. The towel also incorporates a pocket to hold loose objects the user desires to keep in safe proximity. Uh, and if you want to picture this invention in your mind, it looks, looks rather like the front portion of a dickie. So, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So my first thought is that uh, it looked like Wilma Flintstone's dress, you know, pretty or, much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. or oh, yeah. Betty Rubble, right? With like a little uh-huh. tied at the front. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yep. definitely. Mm-hmm. That's an old-fashioned reference. Well, for, yeah. For yeah. The young people, yeah. <laughs> you old folks. Uh, well, look, um, I'm really glad. Uh, I know Dr. Howard has to get to uh, to something doctory. To his actual in, job. In a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I want to thank doc- I want to thank you, Dr. Howard, for coming and talking to us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, before I go, I want to say that uh, registration for the 2019 Doc Dash is open. This is CECOM's annual 5K race walk this year on Saturday, April 13th. I believe there will be more than 600 runners and walkers. There's a kids' dockling dash, and anyone can join the fun. Kids under 14 participate for free. Even if you can't be there in person, you can sign up to be a virtual runner, and all proceeds go to the Iowa City Free Medical Clinic and the University of Iowa Mobile Clinic to provide services to populations that lack access to health care and provide training to healthcare students here at Iowa. To register, visit uidoc-dot-com. Uh, but for now, that is our show. Uh, Aline, Miranda, Maddie, Anna, thank you for joining in as well. Thank you for having thank us. You. And thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week, for all your questions and for your T-shirt orders. If you haven't ordered your SCP T-shirt designed by me, head on over to theshortcode.com slash store and pick one up. They're on sale right now for just $17.99. And all the money earned will go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, an org whose mission of destigmatizing mental illness is important to us. If you're new and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all of the places. We uh, love answering listener questions, so send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcuts at gmail.com or reach out on social media, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORTCT. We'll talk about it on the show. If we've made you smile, give you something to think about today, right now, while your podcast is open, give us some stars and a review. Give Dr. Matt Howard some stars or re- and a review. <laughs> How about that? It's a cheap and easy way to be a friend of the shortcode and helps us know we're doing the right thing. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.